If you look on your notes on page four, you'll see that there's a list of Bible verses, and you can open your Bible to anyone you want to, because when I come to those, I'm not going to give you time to look them up. I'm going to be ripping through them, uh, so I just want you to be aware of that in advance uh, as we work our way through, uh, through the message this evening. Let's, let's pray. Father, heaven again, we thank you for your grace, your kindness, your love. We thank you, Father, for who you are. Father, we pray that, as always, we will be reminded that you are majestic, uh, that you are far above everything else that exists, because everything else that exists has been created. And you are the only thing, the only person that is uncreated. And therefore, Father, you deserve all the praise, all the glory, all the honor, all the respect uh, that we can give you and more. So, Father, we pray that, as always, we'll be struck not only with your majesty, but, Father, with the desire to worship you and to exalt your name. So, Father, we thank you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. When it comes to the fifth sola, which is um, uh, glory to God alone, that would seem, like some of the others, kind of an obvious thing. By the time Martin Luther arrives on the scene, uh, the norm was that it was about the institution of the church. What would the church think? What did the church say? Not what does God think, what does not, what, not what God says. Then also for the priests and for the bishops and for the cardinals and all the rest, uh, it was two things. Number one, they were looking for glory. Uh, they were looking for power. So it was about them and the political maneuvering that went on and that kind of thing. And then, of course, it was also uh, wanting to receive the glory, the respect from others, just like the Pharisees did in the time of Jesus, uh, where the Pharisees uh, wanted to be in the best seats at the, uh, at the feast. Uh, they would pray on the busiest uh, street corners when it was time for prayer so they could be seen by men because it was about them uh, and not about God. And so what we need to do is go back to the reason we were created, which is to give God glory. And sometimes that can be difficult uh, for us to really grasp because it kind of grates against what we think is right and proper. And that is because we think that if anybody is out for their own glory, they must be very egotistical. And that is true of human beings. So not only is it not true of God, it really could not be true of God. There was a book that was written by John Piper called Let the Nations Be Glad. And it was uh, uh, it's a pretty good book. And uh, he emphasized in the book that when it comes to missions, which we are very interested in missions here, that that is the second most important activity of the church. He said missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. In fact, missions exist because worship doesn't. So he wasn't putting down missions. He was holding forth the supreme importance of worship, for, of worship now and worship for all of eternity. He develops this idea by saying this, worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. So worship is a very important thing. It is the ultimate goal of the church. In fact, all of history is moving towards one great goal. And again, the language that John Piper uses is that great goal is the white-hot worship of God and his Son, among all the peoples of the earth. So we need to consider the eternality or the centrality of worship to all of life 
and to all that we are and all that we do as Christians. That is the same as doing all and living for the glory of God and God alone. That's what that is. That's what that's about. So we want to look at what the scripture says about this primary goal. Um, And again, the primary goal is not the church. It is God himself. So again, Piper says that God's glory speaks of his utter and absolute holiness, his magnificent splendor, and the perfections of his character. Psalm 148, his name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. His glory is absolute. His glory is unique. So in Isaiah 42, it says, I am the Lord. This is my name. My glory I give to no other. God also pursues his own glory. Glory, which we, we don't, we've not always thought about it in that way. I think, again, Piper, probably through his reading of John Owen, uh, came out with that statement that God pursues his own glory tirelessly. Again, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, it reads, Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So we were created for his glory. John 1.14, Jesus said, it tells us about Jesus. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. And then in Ephesians 1, it reads, In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. So the purpose of salvation is not to save us from hell. It does that. The purpose of our salvation is to magnify the glory of God. In 1 Chronicles, it says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. We could put it this way in, I guess, our common vernacular, that when you and I share the gospel of Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, what we are doing is we are declaring, we are stating the glory of God. Because the gospel reveals God's justice, it reveals God's wrath, it reveals God's love, it reveals God's sacrifice, it reveals God's um, uh, enduring patience, It reveals God's grace, his mercy. I mean, it's all those things. So we are declaring that, and we are declaring his marvelous works. It's a marvelous thing that he has done. So all of those things are acts of bringing glory to God. When we gather together, again, as believers, which is what we are primarily focusing focusing on right now when it comes to worship, we need to keep that in mind. In fact, next week, Sunday morning, uh, I'll be sharing with you how much of our worship service was radically changed at the Reformation uh, because it was about the congregation. It was about God's people actually worshiping God because it really wasn't taking place uh, by the time Martin Luther came around. Isaiah 66, it reads, I am coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. What many individuals have noticed when they read the scriptures is that the climax of history is the glory of God. The essence of heaven is the glory of God. The purpose of creation is to display God's glory. Everything that is 
Everything that happens has as its ultimate goal and end the glory of God. If we as believers have a great marriage, that reveals the glory of God, the love of God, the grace of God. That's what it reveals. When we are loving and kind towards others and we display the person of Christ in our actions, that brings glory to God because we were not born that way. We don't do those things naturally. We do those things because we've been changed, because we've been empowered by the Spirit of God. So our living, the living of our lives, is to bring glory to God. When we show patience towards others, and, they, and which we should, we do that because we're Christians, but what that reveals is God's grace in our life. It's never about us. No matter how great the things are that we do for others that others see, it is about God who empowers us, who strengthens us, who, as it says in Ephesians, has created the good works for us to walk in. So there's no way we can gather, or no way we should, try, try to gather the glory for ourselves. We would then be stealing the glory of God. Remember the story in the Old Testament. Uh, many people get the, get the answer to this question wrong. Uh, the question would be, why was Moses not allowed to cross into the promised land? And people will normally answer, well, because he disobeyed God and he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And that's wrong. Read the story. God tells him exactly why he is not allowed in the promised land. He says, because you did not glorify my name. When you go back into the story, you read what happened is, is that Moses, he's frustrated with the, frustrated with the people of Israel. That would consider, we would consider that to be normal. And when he stands before them, he says, he's speaking about he, he and Aaron. He says, must, must we bring water from this rock again for you? Uh, they never brought the water from the rock. God did that. And when you read it in the Hebrew language, it's only one word. One word that Moses, I, would, I don't want to say misspoke. Uh, even though he was angry, God held him responsible for what he said. So it wasn't accidental. He was, he was angry, and at that moment, his pride came out for that brief moment. And in that, in that pride, he interjected himself, in a sense, in the place of God. And because of that, he wasn't going in the promised land. Now, he didn't lose his salvation. You know, that's a separate issue. He is in heaven with the Lord. But what we need to remember is that is the reason why he was out of the promised land, the, the place he wanted to go more than any other place on the planet. If anybody had lived a life of sacrifice and pain and agony and torture, it was Moses. If anybody had been put on the spot time and time again, it was Moses. If anybody had been cut down, if anybody had been uh, talked against, if anybody had their name just drugged through the mud by both his enemies and his people, it was Moses. And yet God said, you didn't hollow my name. You didn't reverence my name. Before the people. So you want to enter the promised land. So it's a big deal. It's very, very important. So again, God made man in his own image. And though man rebelled and sinned, God provided a way for his own glory and love and justice to be vindicated through the work of Christ. Even his righteous judgment of the lost will demonstrate the infinite value of the glory of God by showing the infiniteness of of the sin of failing to glorify God. Probably one of those things that most people, at least in our country, miss most often and miss the easiest, and that is that when it comes to God's judgment of sinners, that brings glory to God. 
It is not about getting those dirty scoundrels. It's not about us being pleased that somehow people are getting what they deserve. That's not justice. That's vengeance. Only God, if God has reserved vengeance for himself because it's sacred. So I believe that even when we want to see sinners get what's coming to them, that's a sin on our part. Because it's vindictiveness and we're trying to take the place of God. So we need to be careful that we don't fool ourselves. The bottom line is, is that uh, sin is, a, is an infinite uh, failure against God. It is of an infinite disaster and problem. And so when God judges sin, that brings glory to who he is. We are conditioned, as I mentioned earlier, to consider that anyone pursues his own glory to be very self-centered. That's because when we choose to glorify ourselves rather than God, who is infinitely greater, we recognize the problem. But for God, there is nothing greater than himself. I mean, he can't point to anything else and say, you should bring glory to that, because he is it. He, he can't help it. And again, he's not this prideful, arrogant, self-seeking God. He's fully content with who he is. It is for our benefit, it is for our good to be able to worship him and to glorify him. In his perfection, he seeks the greatest good for himself, and in seeking the greatest good for himself, he seeks the greatest good for his creatures, which is us. And so that greatest good is simply God himself and his glory. Many of us are familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, even though you may not know what that is. And that is where the question is asked, what is the chief end of man, which is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Again, I think it was John Owen who first came out with this. And of course, John Piper picked up on that and really popularized it because a lot of people were not reading John Owen because he can be very difficult to read. And he said, the chief end of God is also to glorify God. There is no greater thing for God to glorify. He and he alone is worthy of all glory. The glory of God is the greatest of all subjects, is the subject and the motivation and the goal of worship. We must learn to cherish God's glory. We need God's help. We must pray that God will help to change our hearts and our minds so that we will learn to cherish the glory of God, to see it as, as the valuable thing that it is. To cherish God's glory is what it means to worship. Worship is expressed in many different ways. But in its broadest understanding, it comes down to cherishing the glory of God. I have no problem with individuals being in a worship service where they feel that their worship service is very meaningful to them and they feel moved. But that is not its purpose, period. Its purpose is for us to glorify him. God will minister to us in many ways. But even today, we have generally speaking, not everyone, made it about ourselves. And that's not what it is. And that's why I think people have so many difficulties in living the life of Christ because it's what begins on Sunday. What begins on Sunday is a self-centered approach to worship. So therefore, the way they live their life Monday through Saturday is a self-centered approach to worship. And so we need to correct that and rectify that. You might want to follow along, even though I'm going to read it very rapidly, in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1, Paul deals with the issue from the negative side. So we're not going to go to all the details. We're just going to look at the description of one thing. And that is, where is man? Because mankind refuses to acknowledge and to glorify God. 
And that is what all this is about. Verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. So what was it that took place just before man became empty-headed? What man did was take what he knew about God existing and what God was like, and he did not glorify God. So the result then of a refusal to glorify God, he became empty in his thinking. And then it proceeds from there. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. So first we see here that man refuses to glorify God. And then number two, he changes the glory of God into that which is created. Corruptible man, and as it continues, birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. As a result of this refusal to glorify God, and because they have changed the glory of God, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So when you read through that, the activities, the sinful activities that mankind engages in, what we see when we look at our culture and reproclaim that it's a dumpster fire, that's Tim's term, by the way, uh, that it's a dumpster fire, the result, that is the direct result of man not glorifying God. That is the spiritual connection. The world doesn't see it, they don't care to see it, they don't want to see it. We need to recognize it for what that is, period. That's what that is. That is why these things happen. Salvation through faith in the power of the gospel will affect the reverse of this downward spiral that Paul describes. This reversal through salvation, affected through the redeeming work of Christ, brings forth worship in the lives of those who find new life in him. Those who come to know Christ, what's one of the first things they want to do? Thank God and go worship God. Because what they now have received, that's the natural thing for the individual who comes to Christ. The foundation of sin, again, is the failure, the refusal to worship God and give him the honor and thanks he is due. It's a refusal to glorify him. But as the culmination of his saving work, he returns believing people to an attitude and a lifestyle of worship. Turn to Revelation 5. There's a picture of the centrality of worship. God the Father is on the throne along with the Lamb in the center. And so beginning in verse 13, it reads this way. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said amen and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. The bad thing about that passage which is not about the passage itself it's about the human beings that are reading it is that we think that's all that worship is. 
We think that's all we're going to do when we're with the Lord. And in our limited minds, we go, this will make me go insane if this is all I'm doing. This is not all that we're doing. This is an expression of the greatness of God. Again, there's a a tie-in when it comes to worship to not only what we do when we gather in, in church, but the way we live our lives. It's all encompassing. So it's never the situation, it's never the case that it's going to be somehow boring or that somehow it's going to be monotonous. It's just, that's not going to happen. And so we need to kind of broaden our understanding of what all that is. So again, worship is the business of heaven, the preoccupation of heaven, even the obsession of heaven. All its inhabitants are focused on God and they proclaim proclaim his supreme value and worth and glory. All this focused on worship. As citizens of heaven, that should be our focus as well. In John 4, there's a conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. From Jesus, we hear, that God, we hear what God most wants from his creatures. It specifically states, the Father seeks worshipers. Those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. If you think about it, it's an amazing statement. We through all the Bible, here we have this clear statement. What is it that God is seeking? He is seeking worshipers. And he's seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The Samaritans had a degree of enthusiasm and devotion in their worship. But Jesus said that they were worshiping what they did not know. The Jews, on the other hand, worshipped according to God's revealed truth, but for the most part, it had become a cold and lifeless ritual. So in John chapter 4, beginning of verse 21, Jesus says this, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you were neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. So true worship, as Jesus was saying, then would no longer be tied to a place. That's why we don't advocate taking a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You can go there if you want to. But there's nothing special, really, about doing that in the sense of worshiping God. We believe that we can worship God anywhere. Not just in a building that's designated as a church. We can and we ought to worship God in every place that we go. We're able to do that because the Spirit of God lives in us. And that's because of what God has done, what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. So the idea is is that worship is no longer tied to a place, but it's tied to an attitude of the heart and... The understanding of truth. As we understand the truth of the word, there's a greater desire to worship God because we recognize more of what he's done. And of course, it's to affect the attitude of our heart. That's why it's a big deal when we gather as believers and you have a bad attitude. It's just not a good thing. Because we're not here for other people. And we're not here for ourselves. We've come together to worship him. In other countries, they don't have the difficulties that we have. Theirs are worse. 
when they get together, in some places, they may be killed because they're getting together as Christians. When I was in Mauritius, uh, one of the church services I went to, it was a, uh, it w- it was a large wood hut. Uh, the walls were wood, the floor was dirt, and the roof was uh, tin. And they didn't want a tin roof so they could hear how cool it sounded when it rained. There was no air conditioning. It got hot. It was metal chairs, which um, I was surprised because I thought it would just be wooden benches. But uh, this church had gotten a donation somehow, uh, and and they had some metal chairs. And uh, as uncomfortable as it was physically, man, let me tell you, the singing was... It was pretty stout. There are about 40 people. What was also interesting in Mauritius is that not everyone, but a a large majority of those who are Christians, all of them had experienced persecution. Most of them, it came from families. If they were Hindu and they became a Christian, their families viewed them as traitors, that they were betraying their family, that they were betraying their race, that they were betraying their nation. For some, the families took it a step further, and they would no longer speak to them. Or they might even ask them to leave the home and never return. They would be treated very poorly, and they can be very cruel to each other. Uh, in, in, in the normal way they would do things, if, if it was common for you to ask your parents' permission to do certain things, well, you knew that no matter what you asked them, the answer was going to be no, Period. And so these people gathered together because it wasn't about what it looked like. It wasn't about the windows, which they had windows. There was just no glass. You know, it was just a hole. It was square, but there was still a hole. It was in the wall. But it was about worshiping God. And it was about worshiping God because he had saved them from their sin. Uh, They had understood that what they had believed before was incorrect. And they were on their way to hell. And that God in his graciousness saved them. That God was under no obligation to save them. And it was a marvelous thing that God had saved them. And it was great. And for a few that I spoke to, uh, they had a very great concern for the church in America. They did. I mean, they were very worried. They came very... None of them were coming to me and talking to me as if I was the rich American and how can our church send them money. I was never asked for a dime. And these churches were just dirt poor. What they wanted to know was, why was the church, why did the church so easily compromise the Christian faith? That's what they want to know. Why? And so they were praying. And this one lady, she was a French lady, and uh, she spoke very sternly to me. She wasn't blaming me for anything, but she was very stern. And she says, I only know one thing that's going to fix the church in America. I said, what is that? You need a heavy dose of persecution. (laughs) I said, yeah, that would probably be good. She says, you have no clue. I go, you're right. We have no clue. (laughs) So we need to recognize that. So worship must be genuine and from the heart. It must be in accordance with God's ultimate self-revelation and self-giving in Jesus Christ. Nowhere else does the Bible speak of God seeking anything from man. He seeks worshipers. God has made us and sought us and redeemed us that we might glorify him and enjoy him forever in worship. So again, that's why when we gather together for worship, it doesn't matter our emotional aptitude. 
Whether one is very emotional or non-emotional, we can both celebrate the glory of God. We all can recognize the glory of God. We can declare it. We can state it. We can rehearse it. We can be grateful. We can express that in different ways. But, but it's not an emotional state. It's not a feeling that one gets. Because sometimes people say, you know, you ask, some people ask them, well, how was church today? Oh, it was just so worshipful. And that's when the mischievous part of my brain begins to activate when people say that. But I usually restrain myself. But with one person, I did this. I said, today it was? Oh, yeah. So what happened last week? You know what I mean? Well, today, you said, today it was so worshipful. That would assume that last week wasn't as worshipful. Well, last week was fine. So then was it worse before that? I mean, and then this person goes, look, and they said, I don't want to talk to you. Um, <laughs> kind of a thing. And I wasn't trying to make fun of them. I was just, we, we need to understand that that's, I don't know what that idea is. But again, we can have a great, I guess you would say, I hate even the word experience, a worship experience, but it not necessarily affect us emotionally. Now, for those of us who are emotional, that can be a really hard thing to grasp. But again, what we need to recognize is that it's about our attitude and the way we come to God. And so for the one who has a great feeling, that's great. That's fantastic. For others who tend to be a little more stoic, don't assume they are not fully immersed in the worship of God. Because they may be, and they often are. All of worship is a response to God's gracious, gracious initiative. Worship is our gift to God. Again, it's the only thing he seeks from those to whom he has given everything. We must realize that the idea of worship, the inclination to worship, the desire for worship, the ability to worship come only as a result of God's gift to us. His saving initiative in our lives and the enabling work of the Holy Spirit. Not only is the chief end of God to glorify God and the chief end of man to glorify God and worship, but the chief end of the church is to glorify God through worship. Because many think that the mission of the church is found in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, what we call the Great Commission. If you're not familiar, it reads this way. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So the Great Commission not only includes the work of evangelizing the lost, but also of discipling believers and teaching them to obey the commands of Christ. So the question would be this. Are the, evangeliz- are the evangelization of the world and the edification of the saints, the ultimate expressions of God's purposes in creating us and saving us and calling us into a service? And the answer is, I don't think so. Because again, Jesus' own words, he says in the Great Commission, that we are to learn to obey all that he commanded. Elsewhere, he makes it clear what the most important command is. Mark 12, 28 Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceived that he had answered them well, and asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And when he says, he didn't mean what's what's the first one of the Ten Commandments. He means which is the first, which one has the priority? 
of all the commandments, there's 613. What is the most important one? What is the, what is, what is the, the, the pinnacle, the top? Jesus answered and said, The first of all the commandments is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. I can tell you right now that I fail in loving God with all my heart. I want to, but I don't do that. I fail in loving God with all my soul. I want to, but I don't do that. I fail in, wanting, in, in loving God with all my mind. I want to, maybe I think I want to, but I don't. And loving God with all my strength, I don't do that either. I need God's help to do that. But this is what God desires. This is the obedience that God wants. That's why it's empty. If you read your Bible every day and tithe every week, but you do not love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're just going through the motions. And God doesn't want it. He doesn't want it. He's certainly not impressed. He doesn't need any of those things. This is what he wants. He wants us. He wants us. We talk about a personal relationship with Christ. A personal relationship with Christ does not mean that I have a private relationship with Christ. What it means is, is that I have a relationship like we do with people. And I'm completely committed to him. And I already know that he is completely committed to me. And we converse. We communicate. I want to help him, but he doesn't need any help. So it's all one way when it comes to that. But he desires my obedience. But not because he wants to be my my boss. He is my Lord. But it's not because he wants to be my boss. Just like when we give our little kids rules and commands to follow. It's not because we want to be the boss. A, we just know we are. You know, we're, I'm dad. This is mom. I'm the boss. But we give them those commands for their benefit. It's for them that we do this. So their life can be what? Happy. Fulfilled. Joyful. Safe. Wonderful. Filled with experiences. That's why we do all those things. When you were tired, sometimes we think that we just want them out of our hair. And that's why we want them to go to bed at 8 instead of 8.30. But in reality, besides those moments of weakness, the idea is, is they need their sleep. And left to themselves, they will stay up and they will create more chaos than they already do. And that is how God is with us. Not that he thinks that we're infants. But again, his commands are for our benefit. That's why he says that his commands are not heavy chains around our necks. So the great commandment then tells us that above all else, we are to love God with all of our being. Our primary responsibility is not service, and our primary responsibility, in a sense, is not even obedience. We are to be first and foremost lovers of God, people who glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we express that love, again, through a life and a lifestyle of worship. So worship then is loving God with all your being and cherishing his glory. So again, God is seeking worshipers. He's not seeking evangelists. He's not seeking seeking disciplers. 
He's not seeking missionaries, but worshipers, those who love God, lovers of God who base their whole existence in exalting him in all their endeavors. The Great Commission that we read in Matthew grows out of the interworking of the first and second of the greatest commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor. If we truly love God, we will follow through with the love of neighbor, which he does command and he enables us. The greatest love we can show to our neighbors to help them become a lover of God and a worshiper in their own right. So a church that genuinely worships will reach out. If we do not grow to share God's heart for the lost, we may legitimately question how close we have really come to him in worship. And remember that evangelization is not primarily or maybe never any program the church does. It's what all of us do on a regular basis as we just live our lives. That's what that is. And we have to think about it. We have to intentionally say things. But it's not about a program or having a special day to evangelize anybody. It's to have a heart for the lost because we love God. If we love God, God changes our heart and gives to us a great love for others. Back to... I don't know if I want to give this uh, credit to Piper or to John Owen, but I think it was Piper who said this one because I kind of lost track. Of all the activities in the church, only one is an end in itself, worship. Worship is not a means to anything else. We don't primarily worship at church to grow our numbers, to make people feel better about themselves, even to teach believers or evangelize the lost. We worship to actively cherish and savor the glory of God. Again, remember... And Piper did say this, this is in his book. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Sunday school exists because worship doesn't. Not to the fullest extent possible, that is. Youth groups exist because worship doesn't. Evangelism and evangelism teams exist because worship doesn't. Small groups, churches that have those, exist because worship doesn't. Discipleship programs exist because worship doesn't. Even preaching exists. Because worship doesn't. The ultimate goal of all of those activities is to build more and better worshipers to the glory of God. Only worship is purely vertical in its focus. All these other ministries focus on people. And that's why we know that when the Lord returns and sin is judged, there will be no more preaching, there will be no more discipling, there will be no more Sunday school, and no more evangelism. But there will be worship. There will be worship. So what do we do? Well, we begin by reordering our priorities. The first has to do with the pettiness of many of our squabbles over different matters of taste and style and worship. I don't know if we're exempt from that. We don't really have a big problem with that. But we have to recognize when it comes to a lot of the uh, mechanics, I guess you would say, we need to realize that we all have different tastes. That's just a, that's a fact of life. And one person's taste is not better than anybody else. What God is looking for are basically faces that are turned towards heaven to worship him and adore him. And I do believe that God is grieved when we face off against each other in our narrow-minded approach to what worship should be like. We acknowledge that worship is primarily for God, but then we need to make sure that we do not assume that our particular taste in music just happens to coincide exactly with God's taste of music. In fact, 
God's taste in music must be really different because he says to make a joyful what? Noise. Sometimes, well, not so much here. We actually sing pretty good. But when I was in the jail preaching, there were times we would all together sing. It was noise. It was just, I mean, it was bad. And there are times there's some very talented men in jail, and they could sing. But there are other times, in fact, one time it was so bad, I had to stop them. And I said, I don't know what you're doing, but the man who wrote that is about ready to rise from the dead. And God is about to say there's a difference between noise and clamoring. And so we had a little mini lesson, <laughs> which I know I'm not really all that musical in that sense, but we had one anyway, and uh, it got a little better. The other thing is that's very important is this, and that's the unity of the body of Christ. That is a very precious thing. And man has really messed that up. But not only messing that up in the fact that we're not together, so to speak, but even in this idea of how unity is to be achieved. Because remember that God seeks those who worship him in truth and those who want to throw out truth and somehow find the lowest common denominator of, of getting together. And normally the lowest common denominator is that we're people and that we're sinners. That's not a good foundation for anything. So the unity of the body of Christ is a precious thing. And so when it comes to issues of worship, music in the church, that causes disunity. Sometimes in some churches, music causes more disunity than anything else, but not always. But there needs to be a unity in the body that, that is lived out in the life of the local congregation as we worship together and as we live together. If we're going to assemble for meaningful times of corporate worship, we must first become worshipers ourselves. And come together on Sundays out of a week of worshiping and walking with God. That's what enhances our worship together. It's how we are all living during the week. We, make sure, we need to make sure we don't allow busyness for God to supplant an intimate walk with God. And then go through the motions and have no private power supply that is in by the Spirit. The New Testament teaching is that all of life is to be a response to the worship of God let me read to you Romans 12, 1. This will be from the Amplified. Some of you knew that I was going to read from the Amplified eventually. And it reads this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg you in view of all the mercies of God to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all of your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, consecrated, and well-pleasing to God. And this is your reasonable rational and intelligent service and spiritual worship. So our appropriate response is to regularly offer ourselves to God as an act of love and worship. Let me tell you a children's story to end. You might know the story. This has been told in different ways, depending on what you're familiar with. But I won't give you the Disney version. And I'll give you the version from Europe. It's called The Story of the Stone Soup. There were three soldiers returning home from war. They approached a village, but the villagers, seeing them coming, were scurrying around to hide all their food because there was a shortage, and they didn't want to have to share with these outsiders. The soldiers come in the, into the village, and they tell the soldiers they have no food to give them. The soldiers were pretty shrewd. So they tell the villagers that they're going to make some stone soup. And so they just ask for a large kettle filled with water. They choose several large round stones and they add them to the kettle. And the villagers were looking on with great curiosity. 
Then one of the soldiers said, you know, this soup should be excellent, but you know, if we had a couple potatoes, it would be better. One of the villagers said, well, I, th- I think I have a few to spare. And they run off and they get some potatoes. The other soldier says, you know, he tastes the soup. Wow, this is so good. But you know, if there's some carrots, it'd be excellent. Somebody runs off. And the same thing happens again with onions, cabbage, and so forth. Until in the end, they have hearty stone soup that's been, prepared, that's been prepared. The soldiers then invite the villagers to join with them in their feast. And the villagers were amazed that such a marvelous soup could be made with just some stones. In our corporate worship, when we gather together, our rituals, our hymns, our anthems, even our sermons are all like those stones. There are nothing that particularly impresses God. It's just a framework. It's a skeleton. What makes our worship special is when we come and add to the pot from what's been stored up in our hearts during a week of worshiping and walking with God, a week of loving God and cherishing and savoring his glory. Then we are ready to worship God together when our corporate adoration is the overflow of many hearts rejoicing in the goodness and the greatness of God, then our congregational worship will truly be a nourishing and invigorating feast for the people of God and a fragrant aroma to the, to the God of glory who delights in the worship of his people. I know that there's been a few here through the years who have been diagnosed with cancer. And because of God's grace... They have overcome it. And for some of them, maybe it's for all of them, but for some of them I know this, that when they get that final report, that all that treatment and suffering is is done, and it looks like the cancer's gone, there's a very strong desire to praise God. And then when we gather together and we sing, they probably sing a little louder. There's a little more energy. There's a little more explosion of their voice if they have the strength. There's a a greater paying attention to the words of what we sing. When people are praying in public and there's a thanking of God, they're tuned in and they're more keen to what's being said than ever before. Not maybe that they weren't paying attention, but now it's like it's magnified. And then when it comes to the reading of Scripture sometimes... It's intensified because they have immediately been a part of what they can easily recognize as the great grace and power and strength of God. And the same thing happens for those who are praying for a loved one for a long time, and that loved one suddenly gets saved. And we can list off a bunch of things that would cause that. What the idea is, is that even though there may not always be those dramatic things in our life, if we're paying attention to our life and paying attention to God, and seeking God throughout the week. When we come together, we are these individuals who are bringing together our experiences, our answered prayers, our struggles, our victories, our recognition of God's sovereign hand in so many aspects of life that it's great to get together. So sometimes when someone is sharing what God has done, we're sitting there going, not because we're thinking, hurry up, Because when we identify, yes, I know exactly what, yes, 
That's what happened to me. We may not be saying that, but that's why we're doing that. And that's what we need to have more of. That is what creates the worship that we sometimes long for. But sometimes the reason why it's anemic is because we don't live to the glory of God alone. We don't pay attention to the fifth sola. Somehow it's reverted back to being all about us. And that's why our worship is anemic. That's why maybe our own spiritual life is anemic. And that is why our own life sometimes becomes a bit dull. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your unbelievable patience with us. Because, Father, we are fully aware that you see the anemia in our life every week. We have those moments, and for some, maybe there's been a long period of time where we have done well. We have lived as we ought to live. We have worshipped as we ought to worship, and we thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to live as we ought to live, to desire to come and to worship together as we ought to, that we should desire that others come together with us and worship as we ought to, that we may together celebrate because, Father, you don't just intervene in our life once. You don't just intervene in our life twice. You intervene in our life on a regular basis. You allow us to see your hand in the lives of others on a regular basis. Uh, but too often our, our eyes have been blinded by our sin. Because, Father, we are not living and doing all things to the glory of God and to glorify God alone. We have sought to supplant that. And so, Father, we ask that you would forgive us of that. We thank you, Lord, though we are all guilty of that at times, that again in your grace, Romans tells us in chapter 8 that we are not condemned. And so all we can do is humbly say thank you, knowing that it's not even close to being enough and never will be, but that you are not standing there waiting for us to do enough of anything that you simply desire us to adore you, to cherish you, to enjoy you, that we may receive the benefits that will come our way as we worship you. And so, Father, we thank you. And we bring our time of worship now to a close because, Father, we truly are grateful for all that you have done in our imperfect way. We thank you imperfectly, but we thank you nonetheless. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.